Well, if my voice gets a little gravelly or sniffly or whatever, if I don't shake your hand after the worship service, I'm fighting off a little bit of a cold. I don't know, probably a few of you are as well, but uh, it's good to be with you here this morning. Well, we're moving along in our sermon series titled Exodus, Saved for Glory, and the passage we're about ready to read is spoken of a number of times in the Bible. It's, it's spoken of as a warning to us. Earlier, Grayson read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul warned, that was Grayson, not Ali, by the way, I don't know if you noticed that. Um, he, he read where Paul warned the church in Corinth not to do as the Israelites did in our passage. Don't be like those grumblers or complainers in Exodus chapter 17. So let me ask you, are you a grumbler? Do you find it easy to complain? Just on the way here this morning, I was in the car grabbing my girls. I was running late, and I started talking, and I was complaining a little bit about how far behind I was. And then I said to my daughter, I said, you know what I'm preaching on this morning? <laughs> Grumbling and complaining. They laughed. Kids always like it when they, when they catch you being a hypocrite, right? <clears throat> the passage that we're about ready to study helps us with our grumbling. And what we need to see is this. Listen, when God, God's grace enters our lives, there is no room for grumbling, only rejoicing. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning. Help us to be a people who are able to actually look into our own souls and see how we grumble and complain and not make excuses for that, but see it as our need to submit to you, Heavenly Father, to trust in you, to rest in you. May this story not only be a reminder, but may it point us to the grace that enables us to do that, we pray. Amen. 
So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. It's a place known for its uh, where winters are long and they're cold and summers are hot and really humid. And so in February, people complain about the cold and then yearn for spring. But then come August, they complain about the heat and yearn for fall. My guess is pretty much every one of us here knows how to complain about the weather, do we not? But we complain about a lot of other stuff, too. Have you ever held a TV remote in your hands, looking a 100 different channels to surf, and, and you still say, there's nothing to watch? Have you ever stood in front of the refrigerator, perhaps just leaning on the door, and you can't remember why you were there, but you're looking in there at all this food, and you say what? There's nothing to eat. Or about the times you've looked at all the clothes in your closet and grumbled, I've got nothing to wear. Think about it. No matter the time of day or what we're doing, there always seems to be something to grumble about, correct? Now imagine, imagine if you could, every grumble you've ever had turned into a grain of rice. You know what? I think I'd be able to feed the world. How about you? And isn't it true, we despise grumbling in others while at the same time we treasure our own grumblings. We feel entitled to them, right? But listen, no matter how justified we feel, grumbling is a sign that something is not right. And not right out there, but in here. Grumbling is a sign that something is not right within us. Think it through. Every time you grumble, what we see in this passage is that you're actually accusing God of failure. God obviously is not present with me like he said he would be, because if, if he was there with me, my life would be different for sure, I guarantee you. Even our petty grumblings about traffic delays and extra homework demonstrates that we're not living with the biblical worldview, that we're, that we're not captivated by Christ and his kingdom in this broken world in which we live. You know, I don't think our Lord would have grumbled if he sat down at his favorite local restaurant only to find out that they were sold out of clam chowder. And yet we do. Grumbling reveals lack of maturity, lack of faith, lack of trust in God. When you're grumbling, listen, you say, I deserve better. If you really were for me, God, then, then I would have better. Grumbling also says, I know better. God, if you really knew what was going on in my life, I'd have X instead of Y and Z. Grumbling also reveals that we have a worship problem. See, we all worship something. Even, even people who say they don't believe in any God or anything, any religion, we all worship something. We either worship our creator or something in creation, like our career or relationships or wealth or security. None of these things will in the long run, in the long run, ever deliver the promises that you hope they will deliver to you. They will always let you down. Therefore, you will always be led to grumbling in this world. And my friends, grumbling is a worship problem. So what is the opposite of the word grumble? Look it up in Roger's The Source. I doubt any of you have that as an app on your phone right now. But um, look it up. What does it say? The opposite of grumbling is praise. How about that? The opposite of to grumble is to praise. Now, some of you are going for your phones. You're like, I don't think that's true. That can't be. It's true. I already looked it up for you. 
Now you can check the ball scores instead. Okay. Because of the context also of this passage, we know that this passage is ultimately about God preparing his people to worship him. Where is God taking his people? He's taking them out of Egypt. and He's bringing them on this journey through the Red Sea and down south into Sinai where his mountain is, where there will be a big giant worship service where God reveals his glory to his people. But the problem is his people aren't ready yet to really truly worship God, stripped of their pride, longing to sing praises of his grace and mercy to them. And so God brings them through the desert. He allows them to suffer thirst and hunger and thirst again so that they would learn to find their satisfaction in him alone. They do not love God. They do not delight in God. They do not trust God. They're not committed to God, to being God's people. But listen, God is committed to being their God, even if it means he has to suffer. In our passage, God is trying to get his people to comprehend that he is their God. They can trust him and rest in him, especially even when things get tough. And when they do rest in him, they will no longer grumble. In fact, they will praise God. They will worship him with their lives. My friends, the grace of God allows you to rest in him so that your life becomes a life of praise. I don't know about you, but I need that. I need the reminding. This is what this passage is here for us. This morning, we're going to look at this in three areas. We're going to look... Bless you. We're going to look at... First, God in the dock, then grace on the rock, and then truth to unlock. Hi, see what I'm doing there. All right. First, God in the dock. What is meant by the phrase God in the dock? If you're attorney, you know. The dock is a place in the courtroom where the prisoner is put while he is on trial. The Israelites are doing what we moderns do oh so well. They put God on trial. When we complain, when we grumble about our circumstances, ultimately it is God who we place in the dock. Not that bad driver or the really poor server. Listen, it's one thing when we come to God in faith and humility, asking him, why, Lord, how come this is happening? Help me to understand. That's coming to the Lord in, um, in pleading in faith. We see it in the Psalms, like Psalm 69, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. What a beautiful prayer. But faithful pleading is not what we see in our passage, is it? As a reminder, God has been leading his people for over two months, probably like two and a half months now. And we read in verse 1 that the people are moving on from the wilderness of sin. Don't get wrapped up in that word sin, all right? That's actually just, it's a, it's a proper name for an area. And in the ancient Hebrew, um, it, it didn't mean sin like you're sinning. It's just a name of a place. Don't get, don't, don't weird out on that. Um, they're moving on from that. And it's a command of the Lord. We see it in the passage. This is a command. God commanded them. They know that God is leading them through Moses through this, and, and through the, uh, the, the cloud of smoke during the day and the, and the pillar of fire at night. God is leading them. But they do not like God's leadership. They seem to be lost, meandering, and going through all kinds of hardships. They seem to think that God has a sick sense of humor. I think they would have really enjoyed singing that Depeche Mode song from the 80s. 
I don't want to start any blasphemous rumors, but I think that God's got a sick sense of humor, and when I die, I expect to find him laughing. God leads his people to Rephidim. What does that mean? Rephidim means resting place. Really? What, does God have some sort of sick sense of humor? Why would he lead us to a place called resting place only to give us an anxiety attack? That's what they're thinking. So they're not only grumbling, they're quarreling. They quarreled with Moses. Verse 2, they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now they're making demands of Moses. Give us, they say. They quarrel with him. But Moses shows them that they're quarreling, they're grumbling, really is a sin against God. Look at verse uh, where he says, Why do you quarrel with me? Moses says. Why do you test the Lord? Moses rebukes them, but his rebuke didn't gain much traction, did it? Verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? When you're really in the midst of a grumble fest, you can just make all kinds of just insane accusations, can you not? Yeah, like, yeah, you're right, Israelites. I left my nice home and family in in Midian and came here to walk through the desert with all you guys just so I could kill you. But in some ways, we can sympathize with the Israelites, right? Their circumstances really are dire. They aren't grumbling over not having enough shows to watch on TV or or a nice skirt in the closet. There's roughly 1.5 million of them wandering through the wilderness. They're blindly following God's leading. They don't have the map. They're just following. And they can handle it for a week or two, probably you and I as well, maybe a week or two. But it's been two and a half months now. So we can kind of understand. We can sympathize. But we must be careful to do this, though, we must not embrace what? They're grumbling. Psalm 95, in fact, warns us to be careful of how we respond to God's grace. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers, this is God speaking, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Listen. Though they had seen my work. They had seen God's work. They had seen God part the Red Sea, deliver God from his, their, their enemies. They had seen God turn bitter into sweet. They would seen manna fall from the heaven every morning, including that very morning they were grumbling. And yet they became like small children who think that if I just complain enough, I'll get what I want. Do you see how silly, how pitiful it is when we as Christians, when, we've, when we experience God's, God's presence and his care and his provision in the past, and then when new hardships enter our lives, we start picking up stones to throw. This story corrects us, and we do need correcting often. Do not put God to the test. This story also helps us to think how God operates God is putting his dearly loved people to the test so that they would finally see, finally, that he alone is able to make the bitter water sweet, that God himself is the living water that they seek after, that God is the bread of heaven. 
God puts them and us through tests so that we see more and more God's glory in our lives in the midst of our hard circumstances. And remember, when we see God's glory in the midst of our hardship, when we rest in him despite our circumstances, what happens? Our lives become lives of praise of worshipful, a worshipful offering to God. You know, I wish there was another way. But how else is there to press this foolish pride that I have deep inside of me? How can I press that out of my life other than by God bringing Mark Middlecoff hard circumstances into my life to humble me? I don't know about you, there's no other way. Let me ask you, Do you have any other way in which you will come to love and trust God and worship him than by difficult situation that that God gives you in which you're stripped of prideful, self-centered love? Is there any other way for you? No. There is no other way. God wants us to rest in him, but we will not rest until he has taken us through tests in life. I'm sorry. I, I know our modern sages like, Ellen and Oprah and Chopra and Osteen, they will tell you that you have it within yourself to be less of a grumbler. You can just do it. But it's kind of comical, isn't it? You can just eradicate all this pride from your life all by yourself. I want to thank all of you here tonight for inviting me here to share with you how I've eradicated pride from my life and become most humble. I had to work really hard. But I'm proud to say, I'm now a humble person. (laughs) I mean, it's comical, right, to think that we on our own are going to press out things that cause pride in our lives. No, we will not. So this passage is meant to challenge us. Almost daily, we're presented with circumstances which we will either grumble or rest. And in these trials, we need to ask a question. Is my allegiance to the Lord conditional? For the Israelites, the allegiance question went like this. Will we continue to trust God when there is no bread and water? Is our allegiance conditioned on God's actions towards us? For you, is your allegiance conditional? I don't know where you are. I don't even know if you're married. But, you know, do you, do you say, Lord, I will rest in my marriage so long as things go the way I want in my marriage? Or, Lord, I'll trust you and be happy so long as my career is making the progress I like. This is conditional allegiance. It's a, it's a putting the Lord to the test. Lord, I will trust you and praise you as long as things go the way I want. My friends, our testing is meant to lead us to a resting. How is that to be? Well, let's look at grace on the rock. First, let's look at Moses' response here. How Moses responds to the crisis is how people ought to have responded in faith, with prayer. Verse 4, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. You see, it's the courtroom image again, right? Stoning was punishment. Uh, It's a death penalty. It happened all the time in the ancient world. You're guilty. The Israelites have found Moses and in turn God guilty. They've judged Moses as deserving, deserving of death. A death sentence. They want to stone him. They're about ready to. That's Moses' response, though, as he cries out in prayer. 
What's God's response? Let's clear our heads. Because what we're going to see here really is astounding. It's amazing. What does God say in verses 5 and 6? And more importantly, what does God mean by what he says in verses 5 and 6? Here's what we read. And Yahweh, that's the Lord. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, that is, get out of here. Go ahead. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. What does God mean by all? Something truly amazing that we need to wrap our hearts around this morning. Check this out. God is saying to Moses, go grab some of those elders. We need some reliable witnesses, right? Remember, I'm on trial. I'm being tested. I'm being accused of being a bad God. I want you to take some witnesses with you. Go way ahead. In fact, leave the wilderness of sin. We're on our way to to the wilderness of Sinai, which is also called Horb. It's the same thing, right? In the Bible, Horb and Sinai Sinai are the same thing. It's a giant wilderness area, but there's also a mountain there, Mount Sinai, where God is going to bring his Ten Commandments. But it's also the place where what? The burning bush. God called Moses at Mount Horeb, and, and that's where he got the staff that he's carrying with him. This is a special staff. God God says, don't just bring the staff. He says, what? Bring the staff that you struck the Nile with. Why? Because this is the staff of God's judgment upon the sinful nation of Egypt. He says, bring that. And listen, you're going to find a special rock in Horeb. I'm going to be on that rock. And you, you're going to strike that rock with the staff of judgment and my merciful waters of life will flow. My people are testing me. I will show them something. I will show them the abundance of my mercy towards them. That I am present with them though they think not. The judgment that they deserve, I will take it. And through that judgment, they will have life. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? What kind of God does this? Your God, if you're in Christ, does this. How do we know that this is what God is saying? Because the New Testament helps us to see that this rock not only points us to Christ, but it says in some mysterious way, that rock was Christ. Earlier, Grayson read from 1 Corinthians, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud, all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink as we have. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul is helping us to see that the rock which was struck in judgment, the rock from which living water flowed to God's people, the rock was Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God, in some mysterious yet amazing gracious way, was struck for God's people. What is God doing? 
he's preparing his people to worship him properly. God is a God of mercy. We must know that first before we can even begin to worship him. God is saying that here on this rock at, at, at Horeb, I'm going to show you my boundless mercy. Listen, God is preparing his people to be fully orbed worshipers of God who worship with all of their heart and joy and delight because they see that their God is a God who doesn't hold sins against them, but rather in mercy draws him into his special favor. He's teaching him to trust him no matter their circumstances because he's the God who showers them with undeserved mercy. God's people are going to gather in Sinai really soon. And the thought that should be running through their heads is this. Our relationship with God isn't based upon how well we keep our noses clean. If that were the case, we'd have been dead of thirst a long time ago, <laughs> right? They will be able to gather around the mountain of God knowing that even, in, even when hardship strikes, God in his grace are present. God wants his people to rest in his grace, no matter their circumstances. God wants you to know, us to know that he's faithful, even when our faith is weak. God is good, even when our trials are bad. We can praise God, no matter our circumstances. Our, our love for God is not to be conditional. Isn't that amazing? We need reminding of that this morning, don't we? God places himself on the rock that Moses strikes. Judgment that God's people deserve, he takes. There is grace on that rock of Christ Jesus. Now, will you rest in the grace of God or complain? Will you continue to grumble or will God's grace towards you cause you to live a life of praise? We've seen God in the dock and God on the rock. Now for the truth to unlock. This story is really meant to remind every generation, including us, that the Lord is among us. Don't ever conclude that he's not, no matter what you're going through. God is with his people, and because of this, we're to rest in him and praise him with our lives. That is why this story is in the Bible. God's plan was to have generations to look back on this story, to be corrected, but also to be encouraged and shown God's grace, that we may walk with him. Scripture regularly points back to the story, and the pointing back actually begins in verse 7. Verse 7, it's not part of the story. It's a, it's a come-after summary of the story. What does it say? And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is God with us or not? That's a good question. The answer is he is with you if you are his child in the good times and the bad. The Hebrew word masa means test or trial or temptation. The word meribah means quarrel, test or, or protest and strive, strife. Elsewhere in the Bible, these masa and meribah, these names are spoken of as a warning. We already heard from Psalm 95 today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to, to the proof, though they had seen my work. And Grayson said, wrote, read the words of Paul, now these things happened to them as an example, example to them, 
but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he may stand, that he stands, take heed lest he falls. Don't let pride get in the way of your life. You are so in need of God's mercy and grace. You know, when we grumble, it really is a pride issue, right? And where there's pride, there's an opportunity to fall. No tem- and he says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. What a good God we have. He tests us, but never beyond what we can do. And he gives us a way out, which really is his gospel, his presence in our lives, so that we can endure it. When you endure trials with hope and faith in Christ, it changes you for the better. You're no longer that person you were before you entered in. You're someone far different. Guess what? You're more like Christ. God matures his children this way. And so Paul is saying, we need this instruction. It's written for us. Just as the ancient Israelites were tempted to doubt God's presence and provision but failed, let us not do so. That's what Paul is saying. Now, notice Paul doesn't say, now, go be good little boys and girls and don't, don't you grumble anymore, okay? We'll, you'll be, be at Grandma's house real soon now, okay? Just, uh, you know, we'll stop one more stop for McDonald's. No, don't be good little boys. That's not the answer here. Paul points us to God. What does he say there? He says, God is faithful. God is faithful. If God promises to be with you in your miserable circumstances, then guess what? God is with you in your miserable circumstances. And he will not let you endure more than than you can handle. But when you start to handle it in your own power and strength, guess what? You fall. But when you handle the temptations and trials in his strength and in great faith, then he walks with you and he delivers you out. God is with his people in their circumstances. How can we know? Look back to Massa and Meribah. God was on the rock that was struck to you. Better still, look to the cross. On the cross, the divine, eternal Son of God, Jesus, was struck for you. Jesus entered this broken, sin-filled world. He came into our suffering, and he suffered in our place. You know, he lived the life he should have lived. He lived the life that I should have lived. And do you know Jesus passed the test? He passed it. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel, right after Jesus was baptized, right? Right after that, what took place? The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. And what took place there? It was a test. He was tempted by the devil. And remember the one temptation where where the devil took Jesus on the top of the temple and and he said, if you really are the Son of God... Then throw yourself down, and then the and then the devil quoted scripture saying, "Well, because because God's gonna the angels are gonna come and they're gonna pick you up and carry you away. You won't be hurt." Remember what Jesus said. He too quoted scripture. Jesus said to them again, "It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test." The devil was trying to sow seeds of doubt into Jesus' mind. Is the Lord among us or not? but he wasn't successful. Jesus had the word of God in his mind, scripture that is, but he also had words of God just spoken to him. What were the last words that, the, that God the Father said to his son while he's being baptized? Remember what took place? The heavens opened up, a dove came down, 
And God spoke to Jesus. What did God say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Those are the last words that Jesus heard as he entered into that horrible temptation that none of us here could have withstood. The last words in his ears were, my father is pleased with me. as if his father is saying, son, I love you. I'm pleased with you. Remember, great trials are coming. You will be tempted and tested to the extreme. Remember, though, son, that my pleasure is upon you. There's a great test, but remember, I love you. What a word for us today. You know, the, the message from heaven isn't don't grumble, don't complain, be a good boy or girl, pass the test, and I will love you. No, the message of the gospel is, God's word to us is, through my son, I have made you to be a son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. If you trust in Christ, you are a son or a daughter, and God is well pleased in you. Yes, he knows what he did yesterday or this morning or the week before, but his mercy is there and his grace for you. So we need to remember from this passage, remember the Remember back to the times in our past where God has revealed his glory in previous trials. Remember you're not an orphan, but his dearly loved son or daughter in whom he's well pleased. And remember this, my friends, a Christian worldview is the reality that we are not in the promised land. We're in a dark and desolate land. We're in the wilderness. God is helping us in the wilderness to learn how to worship him. So let us not attach our hearts to earthly things which lead to grumbling. Let us not worship things in creation. Let us live instead lives of worship and devotion to our Heavenly Father. Maybe not put him to the test, but rather in our trials, may we in him find our rest. Let's pray. Father, it is true, even the most mature of us in this room who've walked with you for a a long time. We grumble. We forget. Forget that this world is not our home yet. We long for the day when you make it right. We doubt your presence. This word says that you are here with us, that we're not orphans. We're your dearly loved children. May that change our hearts. May we be at rest no matter what we're going through. Some of us are going through some really tough things. May we be at rest. May your peace that passes understanding come upon us. And may our lips be full of praise for you. Amen.